This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 96 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I'm coming to you from the New York Film Festival with a special episode presented by the Empire Hotel. My guest today is Mahershala Ali, a terrific actor who, at the age of 42, is finally starting to get the attention and appreciation he deserves. Ali is here in the Big Apple with Moonlight, an indie that premiered at the Telluride Film Festival last month and instantly became this year's critic starling. Adapted from a play and directed by Barry Jenkins, a black filmmaker whose only prior feature was released eight years ago, it covers a period of 20 years during which a young gay black boy grows into a man in the Miami area. Ali plays a strong but quiet drug dealer who, in the first third of the film, comes to serve as something of a father figure to the boy, but who has died off-screen by the time the second third of the film begins. Not since Janet Leigh's exit from Psycho has a character's sudden absence been felt more, and that's a testament to Ali's performance, for which he is a strong contender for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination. Over the course of our conversation, Ali and I talk about his own personal evolution, how he was shaped by the premature death of his father, a Broadway actor, and then by his time in college, to which he arrived on a basketball scholarship but graduated a burgeoning actor, how landing a small part in the 2008 film The Curious Case of Benjamin Button helped to pave the way for his breakout role on another David Fincher project, the Netflix TV series House of Cards, on which he appeared as political operative Remy Danton from 2013 through 2016, what he learned from Jennifer Lawrence, Julianne Moore, and the late Philip Seymour Hoffman while making The Hunger Games Mockingjay Parts 1 and 2, in which he played rebel leader Boggs, and what he's up to now and next, including playing anti-hero Cottonmouth on the just-unveiled Netflix Marvel TV series Luke Cage, and, as was just revealed, another villain in the James Cameron Robert Rodriguez film Alita, Battle Angel. It's a fascinating hour with a great actor who's going to be on the scene for a long time to come, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's go to that conversation. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Marshall, thank you so much for coming in and doing this. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We always begin by asking, where were you born and raised, and Mm. what did or do your folks do for a living? Okay, so I was born in Oakland and raised a few miles away in uh, Hayward, California. And it's funny, my mom, my parents had me really young. Um, They are in high school, 16, 17. Mm, And so I remember my mother graduating from beauty college. I think I was like five. You know, she was a hairstylist for, until I was about 12. Then she started doing it more on the weekends and she eventually became an ordained minister. And my father, they couldn't be more different. My My parents split when I was three on as good as of terms as you can split, I think. <laughs> they were they remained friends for sure. And he moved to New York. My father won, Soul Train used to have a, a national dance contest. And so you had to you know do the whole regional thing and then state thing and eventually he won the national dance contest. He won, wow. I have his letter from Johnson & Johnson. I found it in wow. my storage, which was hidden behind an old yeah. basketball photo. But he won like $2,500 and this car, and all I remember was thinking Starsky and Hutch yeah. at the time. So he won this car and he moved to New York and he was in Dreamgirls and Five Guys Named Mo and did um, Broadway, Broadway until, wow. yeah, until he passed. I was about 20 when he passed away. Wow. Well, yeah. tell me about your name, which is so interesting mm-hmm. and unusual. I mean, it, it has a lot of history, obviously, mm-hmm. for anyone that knows the Bible. But yeah. wh- how did you come to have this name? So I was born Mahershala Hashbaz Gilmore. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a little little yeah. Hebrew and Irish. Right, right. Nice little combination. Right. Um, and so my mother, really interesting to this day, she used to always have these really like lucid dreams. And she dreamt about my name. And she thought it was, she thought my, because again, my mother was 16. So she yes. got pregnant when she was like 15. Yeah. So she thought her mother was going to have a baby. And she told her mom about the dream and everything. And then she dreamt about the name. And, you know, they're biblical people. My mom, my grandmother, my grandmother was an ordained minister yeah. as well. So my mom had a dream about the name, saw it in the Bible as well. And maybe she read it first and dreamt it or whatever. I don't know. But I was named because of this dream that she had. And wow. she wasn't going to name me that, but then went on ahead and did it anyway. I think it was going to be like Christian Devon or right. something like that. <laughs> well, this is a better story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But it means divine, uh, divine restoration. Nice. Well, what sort of a kid were you? I had read a few things where you said you, were, you felt a little isolated. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I always, because of my parents my so my father was a really cultured man and so I would leave Hayward is almost like a suburb of Oakland it's right next to it but it's very very working class a lot of good folks you got to work for everything you have but there's nothing shiny about it at all and I would come to New York in the summers and be around all these artists and dancers and, and actors and just really kind of get I got turned out by the culture of New York so I almost went back home with too much information but naturally I was an athlete I started 
racing bikes for the American Bicycle Association mm-hmm. at four years old. Wow. And almost turned professional. So I was racing until I was 10. You could turn pro when you're like 12, 13. So I was a little bit of a loner. I think my mom, she was, and I look back and I'm really grateful for it, but I had a fairly strict upbringing. Mm-hmm. Like wasn't allowed to date, wasn't allowed. Mm-hmm. Like there was things that made me different from the other kids who were able to kind of hang and do certain things. So with between my mom and my father, their two lifestyles and being exposed to both in a certain way made me feel a little bit awkward on top of other just personality, mm-hmm, little, mm-hmm. you know, glitches or what have you, yeah. <laughs> idiosyncrasies. So I never really felt like when I was on the teams, I played basketball, I got a scholarship, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I had friends, no mm-hmm. doubt, and good friends, some mm-hmm. to this day. But I was kind of, when I played basketball, I was the kind of artistic basketball the, the athlete, right? And then when I got into I got into grad school at NYU. Yeah. When I was at NYU, I was kind of the the actor who was an athlete, right? You know, right. so I'd never really totally felt comfortable. We're gonna get to for sure to yeah. those yeah. those years, but first yeah. I gotta ask: hip hop music was mm. a passion like yeah. that has continued to sort of influence your work since then. Well, yeah, one of the early things I did was I used to write quite a bit. It was the first thing that I got that was remotely academic that I really received positive feedback about. I wrote this essay in like fifth grade or something that I really honestly wrote the morning of, and it was like for the citywide contest, and I got third place. Wow. In this. So it was the first time I got something boomeranged back that right. said, yeah, you could do that. Right. So I got in my head, and in my mind, I thought I was a good writer, and it was just a little bit of confidence, yeah. you know? And then I always loved hip-hop and what it the the culture of it and again being in new york in the early 80s you know um i've been visiting my father since i was three here and um so being so influenced by the music and the culture and the fashion and just the lifestyle so i started writing a lot just um just kind of something to do and eventually i got i had two like record deals like right out of school i got a deal on a independent record label and then later on with this label Hyro Imperium after grad school and you know so I, I did it for a while I made an effort to do it but it's just the type of music I was making which would be kind of quote-unquote underground hip-hop right. it's just not something where the I know where my bread is buttered right. and I've been working this muscle for so long and I love it so much that right. it, it almost was a distraction right. to try to pursue that and so so yeah. when you were coming out of high school, what did you imagine you were going to be doing with your life? Well, you know, I've said before that I, I definitely had aspirations to be a professional athlete, but I always thought a little bit, I don't want to say bigger, but I i was always one who kind of thought a little bit more long term. Yeah. And as a really young kid, I just felt like I had something to say. I was just trying to find what the platform was to articulate that and more so something to express and where it would keep me up at night just feeling like I needed to do something creatively so I I just knew it had it, it just was something that that was probably a little bit beyond me to really fully articulate and then when I found myself on a stage at a certain point and it related back to my father in some way because he was never into sports, mm-hmm. not really, and I was just, I, and I was so into sports that as close as we, as close as we were, we almost never really had that 
point of connection, mm -hmm. you know? And it was after he passed that I started acting and the way the world opened up to me, the possibilities that opened up and how much I enjoyed storytelling for someone who is semi-introverted, right. uh, but being on stage, the freedom that I felt, that it, it kind of told me that's the direction that you that you need to put your energy. So towards. let's set the scene for how that happened. Basically, you, as I understand it, get a scholarship to go to St. Mary's College to play basketball, mm -hmm. and wind up though on a very different trajectory. Who was Brother Ray Berta? Oh man, Brother Ray Berta. So Brother Ray Berta was a oral communications teacher who would be so mad at me right now because <laughs> I say um so much. And that was like his one rule right. was you can't say um. But there were these nine types of oral communication and one of them was poetry. So we'd have to go up during the poetry lab time. Eventually we had to select two poems to go up and and sort of read or present. And these weren't just things that you really got to read. He wouldn't let you get away with that. You almost had to perform them. And I asked Brother Ray, I said, can I do one of my own poems? And he kind of looked at me a little little crazy. He was like, well, yeah, sure. And so I, and this is in the early 90s. This is probably 92, mm -hmm. my freshman year. And the Bay Area, a lot of people may not know this, but was big on, on the poetry movement, the poetry slam, a lot of stuff kind of sprung out of there that later on, you know, it's on, there's Def Jam poetry yeah. and all this stuff that that had a real moment. But that was going on in a, in a very real way then. So I did a couple of my own pieces and he really responded to the point where he pulled me aside and asked me, first he just wanted to work with me on them. And I was like, okay, cool. So after my classes, I would go to his classroom and we would just work on the pieces almost like monologues. And I kind of started performing them. And then I would come back every semester for when he got to that point in the curriculum and would almost present them, almost workshop them so that the rest of the class could kind of see how to how to take this part of that assignment. You know, and that was really probably my true introduction to acting. It would it sprang up really authentically. Amazing. Later on, ended up on stage. And you mentioned that while you were at SMC, you lost your father, mm. and that that really threw you, understandably, for mm. a loop. What was it that happened after that that mm. kind of, again, put you on the track that you ended up on? Well, you know, I think death can really put things in perspective, you know, and he was someone who I really didn't get enough time with whether he's in Amsterdam or Japan or Toronto, whatever, touring, doing these international tours with these shows, or if he was just in New York and was on unemployment because anyone who does this work or does theater or Broadway knows that people have a gig for two years and then you're trying to get work and you might not have a job for two years, you know? So after he was gone, it really put, I think, sports into perspective for me. He'd expose me to independent film and art and take me to museums and he loved fashion. He's really intelligent. So just the exposure that I had to these other things outside of beat these beat these other guys, <laughs> it, it really didn't seem all that important to me. And so I began to really point my energies towards finding ways to uh, communicate what I was feeling inside of myself and looking for things that sort of validated me or or gave me 
uh, gave me a sense of identity and none of that had to do with sports right. at this point. And so I think that's how it, it, it made me look at the world a lot different. You said in something that I read, quote, my fondest memory in my time at SMC was doing Spunk my senior year. Mm. Spunk as a process, as an experience, inspired me in a way that nothing had before, close mm. quote. Yeah. Why was that? It's sometimes you get these parts, and this is my first experience with it because it was my second play, but it was really almost my first play. Because mm-hmm. the first time I did it, I didn't even know what I was doing. I didn't mm-hmm. even read the play. I just memorized my lines right. and showed up and ran on stage and <laughs> popped off. I really didn't know what right. I was doing. But the second time, and I had taken an acting class at that point, I read something and I just felt like I knew who Sykes was. I knew who this guy was. I could hear him. I could hear him in my in my family. It just felt like it was in my DNA. And this is a George Wolf play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That George Wolf had, did it at the Public Theater. Yeah. And and I have no actually funny enough, I think why I also probably took it really seriously is because the first straight play I saw was Angels in America. Wow. My dad took me to that wow. and I saw Jeffrey Wright on stage. Oh wow. And was blown away, yeah. you know? And my dad would talk about George Wolf and and all these theater folks and whatnot. And so I, I almost was getting to pay homage to to my time and my experience with him as well Mm -hmm. and feeling like I was with my dad in this. But I just felt, I felt at home. When I played basketball, when I was an athlete, and I played against some great guys. I played against Jason Kidd, who was a Hall of Famer. I played against Steve Nash. And I I played against Steve Nash for four years, you know, because he was at Santa Clara, the rival school. And I could go on. There's a lot of, got to play with pros and Chris Mullen and all these guys because we would, they were at at Oakland, in Oakland, um, playing for the Warriors, so we'd play open gym. But I got to play against all these wonderful people, but I just remember when I played, especially in real game situations, I just felt like a ball of anxiety and nervousness, and I couldn't be who I was. Anytime you're nervous, you have a you have more fear than what you can really kind of bottle to some degree. Mm-hmm. You don't you're, you're no longer yourself. Mm-hmm. You're this other you're just kind of looking at your body. You're having these out of out of body experiences. But when I was on stage, I finally felt like I was not only myself, but bigger than myself. And it wasn't about me. It was about something else. And I could put my energies towards something. So I think that's where that comes from. I think that was my those were my first experiences. That was that seed that get that gets watered and you you begin to understand and see the world in a way that goes beyond what your experiences have been led up to that point. So when you graduated, got your degree in 96, then you ended up at what I guess has been nicknamed Cal Shakes. This is the mm. California Shakespeare Festival. Yeah. And that was another big step mm-hmm. for you, right? This is like four month mm-hmm. commitment. Yeah. What did that entail? Why was that such a big thing? Well, I was a couple of weeks from graduating and I did a couple of interviews for corporate jobs, you know, like Johnson and Johnson type jobs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being a pharmaceutical sales rep and things of that nature. And it terrified me because I knew I was not I was not a white collar guy you know I could pretend to be one pretty good but deep down I'm not and the acting teacher Rebecca Engel had approached me and said hey they would like to audition you for at a um, Cal Shakes and I don't know what this is you know I had was of course familiar with Shakespeare yeah. and worked on some stuff up to at that point so I go in, I audition with a couple of my poems, and I 
again, positive feedback and just listening for your life signs. It cost like $2,000 to do it. And so they, they gave me a scholarship to wow, do it. I didn't have the $2,000 yeah. to pay for it. And they gave me a scholarship to do it. And I got a pretty wonderful part in the main stage in Henry V. So I did that for the summer and, and got to do the apprentice shows and work with the professional actors. And there was a man, I think his name was Martin Kildare, as a matter of fact, who had gone to NYU, was working as a professional actor, theater, he's been around for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And he said, along with another professor that I had from school, said, you know, you got to audition for grad school. And he'd gone to NYU. And I said, oh, so I just got that in my head. Yeah. I was like, I got to audition for school. But before even getting to that, just the experience of now having graduated from college and being around these other kids who had been doing this for some time who were a little bit more comfortable in their skin in terms of approaching material, it was just such a wonderful education. It's like and just boot camp, a right? It was boot camp yeah. in such a different world. But I do feel like, again, it was natural to me. But then there's a point when I even tell young actors this all the time, it's great if you're, quote unquote, a natural at something, but the most important thing you could do when you recognize something like that is train and learn what that is and work that muscle so that you can control it, you know, so that the spout isn't splashing water everywhere. You want to be able to to make that sharp and be able to repeat that same thing and do it over and over again. And and that's what that was. It was the introduction to training for me, and, and it helped me really value that. And the last thing I'll say about that, something that I really keep with me to this day because I think I, I know I thought different at that time. There was a gentleman who was in the... I know, I know his name was Robert. I can't remember his last name, but one of the professional actors was doing a little bit of a workshop, and he and all of us, all the students, we were sitting there, the apprentice, we were sitting there, and he comes in, and he goes, how many of you want to be rich and famous? And no one raised their hand, but it was more so to bring up the thought. And he said... If you want to be rich and famous, you're doing this for the wrong reasons. And he said, you do it for the love of the work. You do it to, you, you try to develop your skill set and you train. And all of that other stuff is just a natural offshoot of being really good at what you do. But you can't do it for those reasons. And I remember being a little bit, <laughs> a little, uh, like slightly offended in right. some way. But then it made me really quickly go back and think and address in that moment why I was doing it, and what it needed to be about for me. And that's the most important thing I took from my experience there was, was really trying to make it about the work and all the other stuff is, is awesome. That's great if those, the accolades or whatever come, mm -hmm. but really make it about the work. And, and, and in that way, you can sustain yourself creatively over over a, a career and that probably is what convinced you that all right let's pursue at mm -hmm. least applying and seeing for the mfa somewhere mm -hmm. and in the meantime though just as a quick little mm -hmm. trivia item for listeners did you do something briefly between that and going off to nyu <laughs> <laughs> yes i did so what i did was there was this hookup job that everybody had that we could work on. All the basketball players had at St. Mary's College. So right. we could go and work on these boats, the Blue and Gold Fleet. Right. And as a 22-year-old kid who went to school on a basketball scholarship, so I didn't have any bills, mm -hmm. 
So in the summers and right out of school, making $20 an hour, and then you're talking double time and triple time and all this overtime we were getting, I was making good money <laughs> for only having a pager right, bill, right, you know what I'm right, saying, right, in, in right, that right, time. Right. So I graduated school, went right into Cal Shakes, and then when that was done, I started to feel that little bit of emptiness and fear set in as to like, well, what am I going to do now? But I, and I knew at that point that I wanted to audition for NYU, but that was four months away. And so you're looking at it basically a year before, mm -hmm. if I got in, right. before I would be going to school and really being productive and that really scared me. So instead of taking that job on the Blue and Gold Fleet, that made me nervous because it was enough money for a kid from Hayward to, you know, put some change in his pocket, right. get a little one-bedroom apartment. Right. Just get stuck. Have your girlfriend. Right. Right. The next thing you know, you're there 20 <laughs> years later. Right. And I, so instead, I took a job at The Gavin, which was a record industry insider's magazine. And I was literally, no exaggeration, after driving from Hayward, I was staying with my grandparents, Hayward to San Francisco and what it cost to park there, I was paying to work there, <laughs> right, right, right. but my grandparents were really gracious, and I said, hey, I just need a year, because I'm either going to get into this, try to get into this acting program, mm -hmm. try to get into a creative writing program, maybe at Berkeley, or study for this LSAT, one of the three, right. and so I worked there, recorded spins, and called radio stations, and found out how many times they played biggie's one more chance right. or whatever and recorded spins for i think 450 an hour for a few months and speaking of biggie i met biggie the couple of days before he passed while i was working there and crazy story is he walked in i believe it was a thursday and i had already auditioned i did my first audition in san francisco for nyu a couple of weeks back and I got a call back so i had made what they call top 50 so i had to come you have to come to new york to to audition to see if you make the final mm -hmm. cut. So of course I'm in a moment and really excited just in general in my life because I'm holding out hope I get into this school. And straight out of New York comes Notorious Big who hasn't been in California for a long time now because yeah. Tupac and Biggie had had that whole East Coast, West Coast feud, beef yeah. feud yeah, going yeah. on and Tupac had gotten killed a few months right. earlier. So it really wasn't safe for big to be in California mm -hmm. just because people were kind of really operating from a low vibrational place yes. so he wasn't safe and so he came in and I'm a huge notorious big fan he was my favorite rapper and I got to meet him and say hello and then literally the next day I flew to Brooklyn mm -hmm. where he was from right. and I'm staying with an old friend of my father's for my NYU callback. I do my callback on like Saturday, so two days after I'd met him and Sunday morning I woke up and I'm in my friend's living room sleeping on the futon or mm -hmm. something and I turn on I think I turned on the radio I think I turned on Hot 97 or something mm -hmm. and they had said Notorious Big had gotten murdered and I couldn't believe it because yeah. I was literally yeah. just with him and it was weird even more strange to be in Brooklyn right. where he's from and he was where I was from mm -hmm. and then it flown down to LA and got killed crazy yeah. so you go off to NYU and like, for people that don't know they should know this is like extremely selective like 18 people a year yeah, yeah. and those three years are from what I've read kind of a grind mm -hmm. but they you changed a lot in those three years not only 
as an actor, but just as a person, right? Yeah. That's Can you explain what that transformation entails? Mm, you know, the school, I think the conservatory programs, whether it's intentional or not, which I do believe that to some degree it is intentional, but they really push you to the brink from the amount of time that you're in classes, the workload in terms of at some point being in a scene study class and maybe you're in a play or two, the improv classes, just the just the, the juggling of, of, of character work and how you approach things in your body and your voice and you need to drop your voice, you're not speaking from your, you know, all the things, all the, all the constructive criticism that it really breaks you down in, in a way that I don't know if any other type of program can do what an acting program does to a person. And then it also forces you, because you're thinking about character so much, and looking at people and studying lives and just observing how things move in the world, that it really forces you to really reflect a lot. And I had lost my father a few years earlier. I left home when I was like 16. So I was just processing a lot of stuff at that time. And really more so just trying to come to terms with who I was, mm -hmm. like who am I? And I just needed a clue and acting school definitely helped, but I really went on like a real spiritual journey in that time, along with maturing and just understanding what it meant to be an actor. I wouldn't even call myself an actor at that time. I really wasn't. I really wouldn't because I, w I was so kind of new to it. Mm -hmm. I really had just started a year before I'd gotten into school and I was with some extraordinarily talented people. At NYU? Yeah. Who like, were some of your classmates? Intimidating yeah. almost. David Barlow was in my class who does a lot of theater. Danny Pino works a lot. Erica Tazel works mm -hmm. quite a bit. There's a good list of really, really, really talented people who were, and then even above, above and below, like Sterling Brown was there when yeah, I was there, who yeah. just won the Emmy. Yeah, Logan Marshall Green was was there a few years back, who's, you know, gonna be a huge star and all these people. But Dan Sanjata was there. There's, so there's a great. Yeah. Saul Williams had just left. Wood Harris, like all these people who, who have careers yeah. and and Billy Crudup's coming by yeah. half the time. You know, saying hello yeah. and doing little workshops, but. There was, there's a lot of successful people who are really talented who made certain kind of choices as well. Like they weren't necessarily people who were going for the larger right. commercial choices. Right. So it informs you in that way as well. So when you came out of NYU, did you immediately go to L.A. or what was that? How did that happen? Well, I did this independent film. I had a couple of jobs right out. I was really aggressive where I actually approached the agency I was with three months before I got out of school, and I said, hey, you're my agent. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I did a lot of crazy it's, things. Oh, that's good. If it works. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did I did some crazy things. <laughs> so I was I, out of school. I had a, a couple of jobs, and I finished The Great White Hope at Arena Stage. I played Jack Jefferson there, and I came back to New York out of school, and it's, I want to say, late October, early November, and I didn't really have an apartment situation quite worked out and I didn't make a lot of money on the play right. and got, got school loans that I know that eventually I'm gonna have to start paying yeah. for. So I was in an apartment, I was by myself. There was this drip, I clearly remember, there was this drip <laughs> in the corner of the apartment right. and the part of the roof had collapsed and they wouldn't fix it. It was just not a good situation. No. 
And I was really having a hard time because I had spent a lifetime being in school right. and being busy and knowing what the next thing was. And now, finally, I'm really in the real world now. I have no safety net, and I really want to work. And I had maybe like two auditions in the last couple of months. And I found this buddy. I was literally, swear to you, the place was a mess because I'm looking for stuff right. and, and unorganized and probably probably borderline depressed at that time. <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking for something. I'm looking for a buddy pass. My grandmother had worked for United at that time and I could fly for the tax uh, of the flight. Nice, nice. And I'm talking to her on the phone. I was like, Grandma, I'm not going to be able to come out there for Thanksgiving because I can't find my buddy passes. And as I say that, my hand drops and I look, there's a piece of paper and I'm touching the buddy passes. So I found a buddy pass. I hopped out there to go meet with a manager went to the Bay Area first, and then I was going to go down and meet with this manager. And I ended up staying. I had a bag. It was literally one of those stories where you had a bag. And I was staying with my friend who I stayed with in Brooklyn when I came out for my NYU audition. She was in Lion King and had moved out to L.A. because Lion King moved out right. to L.A. So I was staying with her in her apartment, Woodland Hills. And I ended up getting some bites like really quickly. Like The energy was just different. I was more awake and I got a few job offers within a couple of months of being there and I ended up booking a pilot probably like three months after I was there. Did that end Crossing up being Jordan. Crossing Jordan? Crossing yeah. Jordan, yeah. So that was your real professional debut, 19 episodes, you do that. And then for a while it was episodic TV for a yeah. few years, quite a lot of that, yeah. right? But the big break, if somebody asked mm. you, would you would it be correct to say was Curious Case of Benjamin Button? Looking back on it, I would definitely say that is that is the big break, though it wasn't a breakout part. Right. Interesting. It what what it did was it connected me to the right people, you know, people who I, I was kind of amongst the tribe now and some and have relationships with those people to this day that have go beyond the work, you know. We should just remind people so you're to you and Taraji, you you yeah. find the Baby that's aging backwards. Yes. And the yes. big thing, though, was Fincher, right? Because yeah. this would be the thread that has kind of continued through House of Cards, right? Yeah, yeah. And you guys just kind of, he he took a liking to you, or what mm. was it? It's funny. I think I got that job in part because of the 4400. I feel like his daughter or somebody was a fan of the show. Mm -hmm. So that got me the audition, and I went in, I'll never forget, I was in Vancouver working on that show at the time. The 4400. The 4400. Yeah. And I flew down for it because it was a callback situation. And I walk in there on like a weekend and the office is dark <laughs> and there's really no one in there and except Lorraine Mayfield yeah. and David Fincher. <laughs> and I'm going, where's where's the where are the other 20 yeah. people who are yeah, going to yeah, audition yeah. for yeah. this project? And, and he kind of was talking to me as if I already had the job, which was incredible but it made me nervous because I still needed to do the reading you know and I think I kind of read it and he's like yeah okay you want to go downstairs and I'll show you some uh, other stuff or whatever so he had already <laughs> decided I was his guy for it it's so, so funny because yeah. maybe like five or six episodes ago we had yeah. Taraji do this podcast mm. and she said the exact same wow. thing with Lorraine where wow. it's like you go in there and you're looking at the parking lot where's everybody else's yeah. car but so he just kind of knew, knew what he liked yeah yeah that was it I was I feel like I was the only one going in for yeah. that, that day. So it was just about really meeting me. That's awesome. Yeah. So between Benjamin Button, which was in 08, and 
House of Cards, which began in 2013, but I'm sure you were working on probably 2012. Is it true that there was another big drama series that you went in for? Oh, oh, that's (laughs) that's funny. Yeah, I did go in for Game of Thrones. That was a horrible audition. (laughs) Who were you reading for? That was Alexa Fogel, I believe. And what was the part? It was the guy, I don't know his name, but the guy who ends up getting locked in the safe. He was like this big merchant, and he ends up getting locked in the safe in like season two or three or something like that. But he had a nice part. But I just, I, I remember going back to the acting thing just in how I prepare, like I audition pretty good. Like I, I, I can kind of know what, what my audition is going to yeah. be like. Cause I just understand it's a different thing from working on set. So how I approach auditioning, you got to kind of set yourself up to win. So you don't necessarily have to have the magic that day, but there's still technique things that right. you can set yourself up to do. So I had worked all this stuff out to kind of, to kind of give off this sense of power and, and whatnot, just with this chair. I had this whole thing with the chair I was doing from how how I would lean in and right. back, how I would sit. and So I had this whole thing set up with this chair, and I go into, if anyone's been in the HBO offices, mm-hmm. it's as if you're on the inside of an iPod or something. <laughs> it's it's a little futuristic right, and right. strange. Spaceship, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And so I'm in there, I get called into the office, and I have my whole chair thing worked out that is just going to give me my cues to push the dialogue forward and whatnot. And I walk in, and for whatever reason, there's just more pressure auditioning for an HBO show, too. So yeah. you almost don't feel like you have the same degree of, of, of space and authority that you had maybe in other auditions. <laughs> so I walk in, and I already had an average audition with Alexa a couple years back. Right. <laughs> And she's cool. Like she's she's been good to me over the years. I've gone in for her several times. But so I go in, and there's two stools in the room. So she's sitting on a stool, and the camera is is perched right over her shoulder. So she's right next to the camera. So your eye line is almost in the lens, but not. And then I have a stool. There's no No chairs in sight, (laughs) and it's one of those stools where you sit on it and your feet are almost on the ground, but not quite on the ground. So you kind of swing in there. So I was, it was just the most uncomfortable, stiff audition. And afterwards, I did my scene, and she goes, you need to loosen him up a bit. <laughs> He's just so tight. And I'm thinking, yeah, because you don't have a damn yeah, chair right. in here. <laughs> well, fortunately, it didn't, because that yeah. made House of Cards yeah. possible, right? Yeah. So when did you first hear that that was even you know, going to be happening? And then right. how did you... Come, how did it come together for you? Well, it was the end of pilot season in, I want to say, 2012. Yeah. And my manager, who I've been with for about 10 years now, called me and said, hey, um, so there's a series that's at Netflix. I'm like, Netflix? <laughs> I was like, oh, boy. You know, at that time, it just was just yeah, a yeah. strange thing to yeah, hear. The DVD you know? company, yeah, right? Say, like, yeah. yeah, it's like going like, yeah, do we have a, there's a series at Blockbuster. Right. And <laughs> And like, okay, I'll go do the Blockbuster <laughs> right, series. Right, right. But it was the end of pilot season, and we had just come off of a strike and then a pending strike a few years later. And so that hurt a lot of working television actors, you know, because you had people from these A-lister film folks dropping down in the TV and suddenly doing this great series yeah. work. So it kind of pushed out the middle folks. And so I needed a job, like, in a real way. <laughs> And she said, listen, they're doing this series for Netflix, and it's with Kevin Spacey, and David Fincher's doing it, and uh, Robin Wright. 
and Larray Mayfield, who had cast me before, would like you to come in for it if you're interested. And it was a no-brainer for me. Yeah. You know, I went in and and things went well. What did you yeah. know about the character at that point? Uh, I didn't. I didn't know much because it was one of those situations. If I remember right, this is really when you started kind of on a regular basis, just getting the sides. Right. Right. Like right. they sort of stopped at a certain point in the industry. It was kind of commonplace to only get sides for these like secretive right, projects, and it was kind of one of these big shows. When before you could always read a script, right? So I didn't know a lot about him, but she described him to me a bit, and I kind of, kind of, could, I could hear him on the page, you know. And she said, "No smiling, no smiling." <laughs> that no was smiling. Like, that was so. I was, I was trying to, right. just trying, trying not to smile too much because you know, no, no charming, just no smiling, just straight up. So after four seasons of doing that, you gave somebody else a, a really good breakdown of just. Mm-hmm how Remy within the larger story kind of mm-hmm. evolved season by season. Like season mm-hmm. one was meant this for him, season mm-hmm. two. And I wonder if you remember that, if you're able to just share so that people oh, who are now going to go back and revisit this, because I think after four, that was mm-hmm. you've said that was it for you. What was, as you kind of like do a postmortem on your mm-hmm. time there, what's that breakdown? Well, I think at the, there was a point where I think Remy was really operating purely from a place of ambition, which would go back to me just trying to connect to where he comes from. And there's something interesting that Frank says that I wish Remy had an opportunity to rebut, but in the show it says something about, uh, Frank says something about Remy choosing money and, and not understanding that that's not where the real power is, that power is in relationships or something like that, right? But it's funny if you come from, and not saying that Remy was was poor by any stretch of the imagination, but culturally, there are people who are going to value dollars and cents because relationships don't do enough for them. Mm-hmm. You know that the choice to go with with something where you could report back to your 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 parents and say, "Hey, I'm standing next to the president," but if you can't pay off your debt, that doesn't really mean anything right, to them, right, right, you know? Right. So they understand dollars and cents to some degree. So what he valued and where he comes from culturally, he was making choices that that for him were tr- real signs of freedom mm-hmm. and dominion, you know? And I think as the, as the story, as the seasons move along, I think his his heart begins to open up because he's not sustained by that. And I think Jackie wakes him up in part, too, because I imagine for that character, for his his power and access, I don't think that he depending on what type of relationship he wants. I don't necessarily, and with the, and considering the fact that he has very little time, mm-hmm. I don't think he's struggling to go out on a date, right, you right, know. Right. But it's because Jackie is almost equally uninvested, right. where she really kind of wakes him up, and then he falls in love with her, and it puts things into perspective for him. And so, by the end of season four, and and politics are no longer a business mm-hmm. that he wants to to really invest his time in Jackie kind of emerges and that the opportunity to be with her comes back around and I, and they're both willing to sacrifice it all for, yeah. for love. So in some ways I think he's the most, he is of the most human characters on the show. And, and I really loved playing him in my time. Yeah. And must be nice to go out with a Emmy nomination. Uh, yeah, that's a cool, yes, cool. Yes. I know you say awards don't. Yeah. You, you can't judge yourself by that, but right. you still gotta 
feel but nice. You appreciate no, yeah. you, I, I absolutely appreciate the recognition and just in being in the conversation. I just want to be careful of it not becoming the driving right, point right, of why right. you why you do the work, you know. So one last thing I've got to ask before the meat of this, which is yeah. Moonlight. Hunger Games, you've talked about being valuable. This was Mockingjay Parts 1 and 2 because you were with real actors, actors like Philip Seymour Hoffman, who you could learn from, but also stars like Jennifer Lawrence, who you mm. could see how they were handling it and mm. were impressed by the way they, they went about it. So are those basically the main takeaways of being part of such a big franchise? There's certain things you can only understand if you are on the inside of it. And it would be one thing to be in close proximity to Jennifer Lawrence, mm -hmm. you know, who is fantastic and an amazing person. She is absolutely out of her mind and hilarious, <laughs> but she is amazing. Right. I mean, when you kind of begin to connect all those names and Woody Harrelson and Josh Hutcherson and you know, Jeffrey Wright, you go on and on and on, uh, Julianne Moore, that is such a strong collective body of talent and presence and experience and, and quote-unquote success that you can't really point to too many projects that have been able to gather that type of cast mm -hmm. with that type of star power. So to be in there and amongst them in some way it was really more about the education of how worked out their muscle is for that just being normal for them right. and that not being normal for me. You know, that it was however much I was in that project, mm -hmm. that that for me was a real insight in, into how people who have careers that I aspire to have, how they operate and, and how they handle the material. And seeing, I really saw us stop shooting for a day because Philip Seymour Hoffman and Julianne Moore were basically reconstructing a scene, really? you know? And so they, and Francis was cool about it. Yeah. Like it was, it just wasn't totally working, at least how, especially how Philip saw that yeah. it kind of needed yeah. to work. And so we kind of went home early because they were reworking it yeah, yeah. and seeing how they really needed everything to connect and how he knew exactly where he was in the story because you don't shoot in chronological order. Yeah. So really knowing where your character is coming from and where he's going to and and how things need to flow best for for him to be able to metabolize them and make them truthful was all really a, a, an education, yeah. really interesting. Yes. So Moonlight, which premiered at Telluride, yes. mm -hmm. I had the chance to be at that first screening. Everybody right. was blown away. I've got to ask you though I'm thinking mm -hmm. this is a filmmaker Barry Jenkins who had made one other movie yeah, eight years ago but hadn't made a movie in eight years is not sort of a household name right what was the key to convincing you who are now increasingly in a, a place I'm sure where you can pick from lots of different things yeah. was it just such an unbelievable script that you had to say yes or or what sold you on the project when I was in school we would do you know, Chekhov, Ibsen, Shakespeare, like great writers, right? But I was always making this leap as an African-American man. You, There's an extra leap you got to make to kind of be in those parts and be believable. And you just kind of get used to doing Sam Shepard and Arthur Miller and all these people. I had been on House of Cards. I'd been on for television on something that's equivalent to that. And so getting 
a script from Barry Jenkins was like in school getting an August Wilson part where I just got it. I understood it and and it intimidated me to some degree, but it was the most beautiful script I'd ever read. And it's rare you can read a script because scripts are a little bit hard to read because you're you're reading dialogue and then it gets descriptive and then it goes back to dialogue. But I cried reading that script and most of the cast will tell you they did the same mm-hmm. thing when you when you you could see it and feel it on the page and I was a fan of Barry's I was living in the Bay Area I'd moved up to the Bay Area from 2006 to about 2011 mm-hmm. and in that time he released he was living there funny enough I didn't know him but he released Medicine for Melancholy mm-hmm. which is a film that takes it's a mobile core film that takes place in San Francisco and it touches on gentrification and it's kind of like this beautiful tension between these two people who who kind of spark a romance but so being in the bay i went to see that film in a theater in berkeley so i was already a fan of berries and was kind of like who the heck is this filmmaker this right. is amazing i right. wanted to know more about it so when it came back around that the guy who did medicine for melancholy is doing another film and everyone in the agency and my manager were there was a real quiet hum mm-hmm. it wasn't quite a buzz but there was a hum right. going on and when I read it, I, I it. it was clear to me why that was happening. Did it surprise you when you get to about a third of the way through the script mm. and your character disappears? Well, I knew going into it, they said, look, he's in the first chapter of the film, but, but take a look at it. And it's funny because it was probably, look, actors always want to be around from beginning to end. <laughs> you want, as, you want right. as many, you, you want as much to right. do as possible right. usually, right? right. But it was the first time I read a project where my character sort of disappears. And not only did I feel it was okay, it felt like it was necessary. Right. And he's um, felt the rest of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And and Barry, and again, I don't want to spoil anything, but the reason why Barry did it, it really gets into how people who grow up in the inner city in Chicago and and Liberty City and Miami and Oakland and these cities, how people just kind of go away sometime and who who really leave an indelible impression upon you. Sometimes you, they're, they're there, and but you can't take for granted that they're going to be there tomorrow. And when they are no longer there, it it leaves you empty, you know? And, and that's what he tried to achieve by through the way in which he tells the story in, in the three acts. I believe it's sort of, in a lot of ways, not always, but in a lot of ways, Barry's own story, even though he didn't, he's inspired by a play, yeah. it's in a lot of ways his story. Is it a story that you felt, or is it a character even that you're playing mm-hmm. that you felt you could personally relate to? Hmm. There's a couple of things in that which is interesting because, you know, when we started talking, we talked about how, I always felt like a little bit like an outsider. I've always been a bit of a loner. Like I'm I'm okay with kind of holding up in the hotel for the week while we're here doing whatever yeah. and I don't really need to hang and 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 be with a bunch of folks. I just I'm real cool just kind of yeah. doing my own thing. But as a youth, I wanted to be a part of the tribe, part of the clique and be accepted. But then kids recognize things in you that don't necessarily feel, whether it be how you dress, whether it be your weight or your height or your skin color or how you talk, or maybe you're not as smart as them, maybe you're smarter than them. But whatever it is, 
I think so many of us can relate to at some point in our life being outside of the tribe, outside of the TP. Yeah. <laughs> you want to get in. Yeah. And and when you're not a part of it, when you're not embraced, how alone you feel. When you're not at a point when you're ready to embrace being on your own, where you can embrace being cool by being an individual who does not need friends in close proximity, but when you have them, it's great. So I think growing up, again, because of what I was exposed to, what I was personally dealing with growing up, just family stuff mm-hmm. and whatnot, we all have our stuff, mm-hmm. but I just felt very much outside of the outside of the loop, outside of the peer group, and there was a point where we started moving around a lot. So you're kind of the new guy yeah. or the guy who just came back. Oh, he used to go here, but he doesn't go here anymore. So you're not as close with those guys as they used to be. So there's that aspect of it. But I also feel like there's a part in me that can kind of recognize when someone else feels a discomfort that perhaps I've known before. And I've always kind of organically had a degree of empathy yeah. for that and will at least try to be the guy to help a little bit, you know, in my in my own way. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back no, or nothing, no, no, but, no, but I just know that that is something where I naturally tend to kind of feel for people, and that's what Juan does. And many, I think it's an inherent requirement for pretty much if you're an actor to mm-hmm. be able to empathize because you got to right. play all these people that are different from you. But in this case, why? So aside from just general empathy, Mm. because there's a lot of bad things going on around Mm. Juan's community there, why did he take a particular interest in Chiron? Well, I think, so Juan is is Cuban and I I guess Mm Afro-Cuban, like being, I'm obviously a a, a dark skin, you may not be able to see right now, but uh, (laughs) I'm fairly dark skin, man. So he moved to Miami as a young kid and had really tried to assimilate into black culture because of the vast majority of Cubans there would be like your complexion, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so when it comes down to dating and friends and whatnot, like you you would kind of be on the outside, mm-hmm. even though culturally you're the same. So I think Juan intentionally tried to, and Barry and I talked about this, try to assimilate with black culture mm-hmm. and live amongst black people because that's where he could kind of fit in right. and not stand out. But again, being a Cuban, knows that he's not an African-American right. man. So he's still on the outside. He still culturally doesn't get everything that right. someone born into this country who's African-American just naturally wears within their DNA. Mm-hmm. So I think what in part connects him to Little as well as just recognizing, oh, he's a, he's one of the others. Mm-hmm. He's outside. All right, I got to look out for you, little man. And and just kind of take some under in a real in a real organic, authentic, and generous way. And tries to communicate what you just said in that beautiful scene at the beach. He mm-hmm. says to him, you've got to decide for yourself who you are, right? right. The toughest scene, though, I, I'm curious what you saw it as. I'm mm-hmm. looking at the one where they're at the table in Juan's house and Little, who doesn't really have much to say most Mm. of the time, is now asking some questions. And first one is whether or not his mother does drugs and Mm. then if Juan sells drugs. And then you're essentially reacting throughout that, Mm. but you can see a lot going on in Mm. your character. And I just wonder if that scene is the one that you would identify as maybe the most 
demanding, complex, whatever. It's the most complex yeah. because I mean, if we've if you've spent any time with relatively intelligent children, they're the mirrors. They will strip you down in a way because they're just honest yeah. and they ask honest questions and they want the truth. Kids don't like hypocrisy and they recognize it in a way that is a little bit more difficult for d adults to recognize it because by that time you've had so much time in the world that everything can be a little bit convoluted when kids kind of cut right to it. And because of their relationship and because of Juan really connecting to the purity in this, in this little boy, and wanting to be his best self in front of this little boy, always, because I think he also reflects the potential that Juan has in himself to be a good person, that when Chiron asks these very simple questions and Juan has to witness Chiron kind of doing the math mm -hmm. on what that means, if my mom's a drug addict, one, and you're a drug dealer, one, then one and one make two where mm -hmm. this is this is how you're responsible yeah, for this part kind, of the basically. So as much as you're helping me, you you are making my life this is the most difficult part of my life and it comes from the person who's helping me the most. And I think in that instant, Juan is kind of looking into a circus mirror and it all becomes really clear but then also warped at the same time and it breaks him down mm -hmm. so overall how many days were you working on this film and and what was the overall experience obviously mm -hmm. we see what you're dealing with for the work aspect of it right. but how would you describe the overall experience i think originally i was supposed to do i think five days wow. five or six days and i think i ended up doing about eight because of naomi's schedule yeah. she was coming from london and yeah. <laughs> she was having it was a little touch and go there she was having some visa issues and, and i heard she did it during like the bond junket yeah. like she got away from the junket or something to yeah, do i it? think so and she well, did it crazy. she did it her, she did that in three days it's unbelievable that performance yeah 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 unbelievable yeah so um but the experience one just everything about it was just rich one it was hard because i would fly in to and i was doing three other jobs at that time so i was going from one project to the other and i worked on the weekends for that because i was working with a child actor yeah. and so he was working i think thursday to sunday so I would fly in and, and do that work and fly out and go back and do Luke Cage and House of Cards and this other project. But I really missed it. I really missed him and missed Juan, you know, missed yeah, yeah. being connected to him because as soon as I felt like I kind of was getting comfortable in his skin, then I'd have to go away. And and I could feel, I could feel the juices kind of flowing for him and just wanted to be in his body more, you know. Um, but just working with Barry was if not the definitely one of the best experiences of my life and wow. that here was a person who really is a, a master at exploring silence and challenging his actors to sort of articulate the emotional journey without the words and the language sort of being stimulated from and out of the silence. And that kind of usually we almost go into things thinking about it as, well, what's going on here? What am I saying? 
and how does that inform my behavior when Barry works the opposite way, like really getting clear on what the circumstances are, being okay with the discomfort in silence. And if something is necessary to be communicated, then that's when you say it, but you may not even use words to do it. And having that opportunity to, to work in that way was was really refreshing because it, it really had meaning this time. I've had several parts where someone says, Oh, well, you know, he doesn't have a he doesn't have a lot to say. He's a quiet guy, kind of thing. <laughs> and then like someone who's made their living kind right. of, you know, popping in and out of projects. Sometime I'm sometime you feel like I wanna I wanna play someone who has more to say. Right. You know, but within Barry it it really had value. It he really meant that in that what is said is only is purely what is necessary to say. The rest is about being alive and being being alive in space, mm-hmm. and and that even being language. And that was that. I I don't know if I've learned as much on a project as I have in working with Barry. Wow. Well, the last question is just this: a lot of people are going to be catching up with this movie. I think it comes out it's October twenty first. All right. So that's a date people should put on their calendars. But also, people got to know you maybe more than anything up to this point through House of Cards. Yeah. That p- chapter has now ended. Yeah. This one is about to begin with yeah. people seeing this. You've got two projects that I know are getting a lot of attention coming up, including you mentioned Luke Cage, mm. which I think you know I've read you talk about why just culturally it's so significant mm. that, it's, that, it hap- that it's happening, mm. but then for you to be a part of it even is extra. And then just today I saw that Possibly something with James Cameron mm. coming up, which was a surprise. I was like, they released they that. They released huh? it. Okay. Well, I don't know. Somebody it's leaked out the it. Bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's out the back. So I guess just uh, as my final question, you know, what's your sort of state of the union for yourself right now? If you mm. could just capture this moment, if we were to come back and listen to this, you yeah. know, ten years from now, it would explain what your thought process is right now, mm. and just maybe touching, teasing a little bit about these things that are coming up, so that people who loved you on House of Cards or are yeah. going to love you in Moonlight know what, what they have to look forward to with Luke Cage and with James Cameron? Uh, well, I'm, I'm excited about this opportunity in my career to really grow and almost get my second wind. And I'm so appreciative that, that people have begun to, to recognize my work in a way where it can afford me more opportunities. So I think I'm looking toward, to some degree, it's funny, I felt like I've been holding in a sneeze for 20 years. <laughs> and and hopefully this is the chance now, the opp- now I have the chance to let it out. Right. And so I, I, I'm ready to kind of expand and grow and to be more present in the stories, to be consistently three-dimensional. Um, and it's, it's what I've been hungry to do, to be... Um, in that leading man position and have the responsibility of, of carrying stories and working with other wonderful actors just in a larger capacity to this point uh, that, that, than what I've experienced to this point. So that's what I'm looking to do in projects that begin to emerge in, in the coming years, God willing. But in terms of like the couple projects that have, that have yet to be released, yeah. um, Alita Battle Angel, it's funny, I've been been in conversations with Robert Rodriguez about the project for some time and and really communicating with him like kind of what how I would like to to see the the character be expanded to some degree. Can you tell um, anything? I, I'm ignorant about it entirely. Like what's well, the Well it's about the, what I can say is, is it's yeah. about this cyborg, this mm-hmm. girl who then there's three different 
planets and the planet that she lives on and and exists in is the lowest planet and my character is is sort of the the executive of this planet and he runs he runs this this kind of battle royale thing that happens and she is like the cyborg in it but the the concept of the piece and James Cameron's handprint is all on it. I have to be careful what I sure, say right sure, now, sure. just because I I'm not clear on what they're sure, comfortable sure, sure. people knowing at this point. But but it looks like it could be a, a pretty amazing project. And you know James Cameron has a pretty good track yeah. record. You know and <laughs> and him and Robert together right. uh, had have really like worked out. The and script. Robert's going to direct it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so it was just for me just conversations in and and really making the character three-dimensional mm-hmm. so I could get excited about yeah. it, you know? And he's definitely been awesome, and he's, he's working on that and, and everything. So we're it's going to be, I, I think it's going to be a really terrific experience. And so Luke that, Cage is just around the Luke corner, Cage, right? Luke Cage just dropped, yeah. and I heard we kind of broke Netflix for a second the other day. <laughs> that's like right, showing down for hours. a couple of hours. Yeah, yeah so, so that's cool. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah, and it was great working with those folks and Cheo uh, Coker over there and, and uh, Mike Coulter and everyone. So, like and, a lot of great folks. And the they, thing they, for you they, was just that if there had been this kind of a superhero mm, of color when you were a kid, a kid. it would have meant a lot that yeah too. you know it's it's funny like we we really we really do we really do take our cues from entertainment and and for some people most of us probably aren't aren't aware of that because it's just part of the you come in you pop on the tv or you walk into a, a bar or a restaurant and there's there's these images everywhere and it's it's hard for folks to stop and take notice of what of of what images that we kind of get more than others and when I was growing up, like really in the 80s and 90s, I just never really saw myself, especially when I was like conscious of, of, of participating in, in society and turning on the TV and choosing my programming. I just never saw myself reflected in the things that I had a liking for. So it, it makes a difference. Like we, we didn't believe you could be president growing up. People say, oh, you can be anything you want to be. Everyone in the black community knew that, yes, but that stops that president. Like, you just can't be the president. Like, you know, that's just like, that was a common thing in black culture. Like, everyone knows that. And so for Obama, for instance, to be the president in 2008, for these kids, these these, younger generation, these millennials, like, got people who were like 10 or 12 when he was elected president who are 20 now, that's kind of normal to them. So they have this expectation of the world, they have an expectation to to be treated as and considered equal and to have equal opportunities just because of Obama as a symbol. Right. Forget about even what someone might think about him as a president, just because of what he's been able to accomplish as a symbol. Who you see on the news and C-SPAN and all these and CNN or whatever, you know, you see him in this image and him him leading the pack and, and accomplishing things or, or having to fight back against certain things. So just to see him in that position means so much. It's a similar thing when you when you go into entertainment where you have these heroes who, speaking from a young black man's perspective growing up, who are really masculine and intelligent and get the girl and 
that's who you're looking at. And that guy never looked like me. <laughs> but the guy helping him do that kind of looked like me. You know what I'm saying? So you're like, I can shoot for the sidekick because that's who gets the girl, you know, right, or right. whatever. So, Well, yeah. thank you so much. I can't thank wait you. to see what you do next. I really thank appreciate you. your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.